1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. Would you follow along with me as I read this passage of Scripture? First Corinthians eleven seventeen. But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray God's blessing upon this passage. Father, we are thankful that we have the word of God that it is breathed out by the Holy Spirit and scripturated for us so that we can know for certain that you are speaking to us today through your word. I pray your Holy Spirit will illumine our hearts and our minds to understand your word and may he empower us to live it out by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, this morning we are going to partake of the Lord's table after we have the sermon. And this sermon is a conclusion to a sermon I preached at the end of January titled, The Lord's Table Matters in Worship. So that was the last time we did communion. I did part one of 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, and I split it into two. And so this is part two of that. And so we're dealing with the last half of 1 Corinthians 17, 30, or 17 through 34. And this passage tells us that we must gather. It's important for us. It's imperative for us to gather with the church and partake of the table of the Lord according to his instructions. This is Christ's church and this is his table. And so we are to gather with his church and partake according to his instructions. And the last time we went through four different places that we could look or that we should place our attention when we come to the Lord's table. We only got through the first two. But first we saw that as we gather around the Lord's table, we need to look around us. We need to look around and unify with each other. That one of the purposes of the Lord's communion is unity for the church. That we will be one as a church in Christ. One as Christ calls us to be. So as we take of this bread and we take of this cup, we are testifying that Christ has united us. That we are loving each other as we are called to do. Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he said this to his disciples in John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you that you do what? That you love one another. And how do we know? How will people know that we are the disciples of Jesus? Well, he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so the Lord's table is a way for us to demonstrate that, yes, we are loving one another. We have committed to each other in church membership, which is a, is a way to commit or to covenant with one another, to say, I'm committed to loving that other person. I'm committed to helping them grow spiritually. I want to serve them. I want to be accountable to this. Church of Corinth, though, they were not unified, were they? You, you can see that in verse 18 where it says that there were divisions among them. This church was fighting. This church had problems. People were selfish. So even though they gathered around the table, there were problems. There were points of contention. So Paul called them back to the purpose of the Lord's table, that is to look around and unify with the church. So that's verses 17 through 22. And then verses 23 through 26, we saw that the scripture calls us to look back. This is probably the most memorable part of this passage, right? To look back and, look and proclaim the Lord's substitutionary death. And so we take the bread and we take the cup of juice and we use those as symbols to memorialize, to remember that Christ's body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And so the third where place we are to look is to look up. So we look around at each other in unity. We look back and remember Christ's death. And then we look up. We look up in hope of the Lord's soon return. Look at verse number 26. You can see this at the very end of verse 26. 
think this is something that's often missed in the Lord's table, but it's very important. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, and notice the last three words, until he comes. So those last three words are so important, and and they're packed with so much theology. We as the church, we are waiting for Christ to come back, and we believe it's an eminent return. It can happen at any moment. And so as we partake of the Lord's table, we're actually proclaiming what happened in the past. Christ died for us, but we're also looking forward to the future when Christ will come for us. So recall the night before Jesus' death when he was at that table with his disciples. In fact, would you turn back with me to Matthew chapter 26? I want you to see this in this text of Scripture. Matthew 26. This is Jesus. He's in the upper room with his disciples. He's instituted this new ordinance, the Lord's table. There's some sadness in the room because Jesus has said that he is going to leave and they don't like that. But Jesus was talking about he was going to the next day die on a cross, be buried in a tomb. Three days later, he was going to rise again. and Then he was going to appear to them for a period of 40 days, then ascend to heaven and they would be alone. He would send the Holy Spirit, but Jesus would be in heaven. He would not be with them anymore. And so Jesus promised them something at the very end of this meal. Look at Matthew 26, look at verse 27. The scripture says that he, Jesus, took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink all of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. This represents the covenant I'm making with you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And then notice this next promise, verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, of this wine, of this juice, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So the, so the cup and the bread remind us of what Christ has done for us, but the cup also reminds us of what Christ has promised to do for, with us in the future. And what has Christ promised to do with us? He's promised to drink that cup with us. And here's the amazing thing. We, on a regular basis, drink this cup and remember what he's done for us and look forward to the future when he comes back for us. But Jesus won't drink of that cup until that day. So this cup reminds us of that promise. Jesus Christ is coming back Soon. Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Jesus Christ is coming back, and so we are waiting as his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. We're waiting as his bride for him to come back. Do you long for that day? Are you looking forward to that day? That's the longing the church should have. As, As the disciples saw Jesus ascend to heaven, the last promise they heard from those angels is they said, He is going to come back. He will come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Yes, Jesus is in heaven, but not for very long. And since that day, his disciples, his church has been 
longing, waiting for him to return. And the Bible describes the return of Christ like, like a wedding, like a marriage uh, scene. The church is the bride, Jesus is the groom, and Jesus will come back as the groom and take his bride back to the Father's house. And really to understand this, you've got to understand the ancient idea of marriage, the ancient customs of marriage. And there were three phases to the beginning of a marriage. Number one, there was the contract. There was the marriage contract. So mom and dad of the groom get together with mom and dad of the bride, and they make a contract together called an arranged marriage. still happens in some places in the world. And they have an arranged marriage, and they arrange it, and there's a contract signed. There's a dowry given to the bride's parents, you know, a couple cows or, or whatever it is. And there's something given. And, it, and the point is, at that moment... When there's that contract, it starts a time of engagement. We call it engagement. They called it betrothal. And in effect, they were married. But the groom would go during this time. He went to his house, and he would build his house, or he'd prepare his property to bring his bride back to where his father was. And typically, it was the father's property, maybe even an addition onto the father's house or something like that. But that was the first phase. Second phase was the night the groom came to get his bride. And he would take an entourage of friends, and usually it was scheduled, it was planned, but they would act like it was a surprise, and they would take their entourage to that home at that night, and the bride would be waiting with her bridesmaids, and they would take the bride and their party, and they would take them back to the, to the groom's father's home, and they would have the third phase, and that is a wedding feast. And this is the picture we see here of Christ's return. There has been a, a contract made. It's called a covenant. It's the new covenant. All of those who believe in the gospel, who believe in Jesus Christ, are in this new covenant. We are in the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ as the church. So there's a covenant. And now we're in this betrothal period where Christ is in heaven and he's preparing a, a way for us. Right? John chapter 14, the Bible says, Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I don't think we should picture that Jesus has a hammer and nails and he's building a house, okay? Some people have thought of it that way. I've been to some funerals where people think of it that way, and they say, oh yeah, Jesus is building another room on for us up there. I don't think you should imagine it that way. I think it's more like this. Jesus was saying to his disciples, I have to go. Because if I don't go, I can't come back. That's the Father's plan, for me to go and then come back and get you. And then he says in John 14, verse 3, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So there's a day when Christ will appear and he will take his church to be with him. We will have the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will enjoy eternity with the Lord. Now, I thought I should try to convince you that this is true. Because I think this is something that, for whatever reason, we don't talk about very much in a church setting like this. I don't know why that is, and sometimes even in Christian fellowships, that we're not really convinced that it is our delight, our duty in some sense, to wait on the Lord, to long for his return. I mean, 1 Corinthians 1.7. Let me just read through some verses. 1 Corinthians 1.7. You are 
eagerly waiting. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we are waiting for his Son. Titus 2.13, waiting for the blessed hope. Hebrews 9.28, very end. Well, I'll just read the whole thing. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. James 5.8, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's near. It's going to happen soon. Second Peter 3.12, waiting. Jude 1.21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, he's going to appear soon. We will then appear with him in glory. 1 John 3, 2, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And I could have listed so many more verses in here. The scripture over and over and over says we must long for the return of Jesus Christ. I think I skipped ahead too much there. We are waiting for his return. And so the Lord's table is a time for us to take of this cup and remember that the next time that Christ will take of this cup will be with us when we, his church, are in heaven with him. Let me just ask this as a rhetorical question. Think about this. Do you really long for Christ's return? I mean, think about it. If he returned in the next, let's say, 30 minutes, would that be a delight to you? I mean, we have things we look forward to, right? We have things we look forward to maybe tonight or tomorrow. We have an evening service tonight at 5 o'clock. I'm looking forward to that, okay? There's things we look forward to. Do we really look forward to the return of Christ? Do we live each day as if he may return? So we are to look up during the Lord's, the Lord's table, look up in hope of his imminent return. And then last, we are to look in. Examine yourself considering the Lord's judgment. Look within, examine, your, examine yourself considering the Lord's judgment. Look at verse 27, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 27 gives us a warning. It's a warning to consider your attitude and your approach to the Lord's table when you partake. We are not to eat the Lord's table, notice in verse 27, in an unworthy manner. Now what does that mean? Well, eating in an unworthy manner doesn't mean only worthy people are to partake. Because if only worthy people are to partake, then none of us are qualified, right? This is not about your personal worth. This is not about your spiritual credentials. This is not about the list of righteousness that you bring to say, I can take the Lord's table because I'm a good person. Worthy is actually an adverb, and it modifies the manner or the way in which we are to come to the table. So, so the warning is about how 
you partake of the table. It's a warning to be sure that you have the the proper attitude, the proper respect when you come to the table of the Lord. Imagine, if you will, you're at a war memorial and there's some kind of ceremony taking place. So everyone's sitting in their their chairs and they're listening as someone's speaking about those who have given their lives for our freedom. And there's, there's a solemn quietness as people are listening, attending in a, you could say, a worthy manner. In other words, they recognize that those men and women gave their lives. And so that ceremony, that time is worthy of respect. So they have a worthy manner or they have respect that they're giving. And then imagine there are maybe a few that are sitting in some chairs and they're cutting up. They're joking around. Maybe they're even mocking the ceremony. And they're not acting in a worthy manner. They're disrespecting the worth of those men's lives. And that's what we're talking about here. It's approaching the table of the Lord and not seeing Christ work for us as worthy of your respect, of your honor. It's coming to the table of the Lord and not considering really what Christ did for us and why he did it. So the Corinthian church, they were, they were coming to the table and treating it like a party like a social gathering. I mean, they're coming to church, and it's like, this is my place for my friends and I to hang out, for me to be with the people that I like to be with. It's unfortunate. Many people view church like that still, don't they? Maybe they don't think about it in the realm of the Lord's table, but they, they think, okay, I want to go to church, and I just want to be with people that I like, and my, my friends. And friends, that's not church. That's called a social club. This is not a social club where we're coming around and eating some food. No, this is a time for the church to to unify together in love, commit to people, maybe people you wouldn't normally hang out with. (laughs) But Christ is in them and Christ is in you. And so you are united in Christ. This church was also divided. They were fighting with one another. And so they're coming to the table and they're not giving the Lord the respect that he deserves. They're not considering why Jesus died. Why did Jesus die? It's because he loved us. Because he wanted to reconcile us to God. The the cross is about love. It's about reconciliation. It's about unity with the Father. And so when you come to the table and you, you in your heart have bitterness or you have disunity or you're not wanting to reconcile with someone else, It's like you're spitting on the sacrifice of Christ. It's like saying, I don't really care, Christ, that you came to love and to reconcile. I'm not coming for that reason. I'm coming for myself. And so we are to come with this attitude of respect, this idea that we are here to to picture the love that Christ has given, has, has demonstrated to us. We are to walk in love, as Ephesians 6, 2 says. How is it possible that we can walk in love? It's because Christ loved us, and he gave himself for us. This is why, church, it's so important for us to deal with our relationship problems with each other, with other believers, immediately and properly, when we in a church have disagreements and we're going to have them, when we in the church sin against each other and we're going to sin against each other or misunderstand each other, when we have problems between us, when you have a problem with another believer, it's imperative 
that you seek as soon as you possibly can, ASAP, you seek to reconcile with them. And this is what Christ called us to do. Matthew 5, 23 through 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, so you're coming to church to worship, you're coming to the table of the Lord to worship, and there remember that your brother, that's a brother or a sister, that's a believer, you remember that you, your brother has something against you. There, there's, a, there's some kind of sin or some kind of problem between you and another believer. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. Get out of church. Go find that person. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Before you come and worship God, go and reconcile with that brother or sister in Christ. Reconciled means to bring two people together. That's what people want to happen in Ukraine, right? They want to bring the Russians and the Ukrainians together in peace and harmony and everyone just to love each other. That's, but that's what people want, want when there's some kind of contention. When reconciliation happens and it's of the Lord, it's a sweet thing. Reconciliation is bringing two people who have some kind of problem together and they solve it in the way the Lord has intended them to solve it. Reconciliation is not ignoring sin. It's not pretending like it doesn't matter. It's not acting like it's no big deal. Reconciliation means this. It means two Christians sit down. They talk about what happened. They're open to being wrong. That's an important one. And when they realize they're wrong, they ask forgiveness. And they choose to love and forgive each other. That's reconciliation. That's how a healthy church, a spiritually healthy church, should deal with problems. Spiritually unhealthy churches and spiritually unhealthy church members harbor wrong. They, they bring up the past to punish other people. They hold on to bitterness. They gossip about other people. And in some times they even leave and they run from the problem instead of seeking reconciliation. And there's, I think there's too many Christians who think the righteous thing to do as a Christian is to let go and let God. First of all, that is not in the Bible, okay? And actually, that idea that it's righteous for you as a Christian to be like, I'm just going to let it go, is unbiblical. It's actually the exact opposite of what God calls us to do. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat in counseling, especially when I was a counseling pastor in South Carolina, and I'd have people in the room, and they would tell me, it's like, well, I'm just going to, let it go. As if that's a righteous thing. That is not what the Bible teaches. And if I'm wrong on that, please let me know. But I can pretty much guarantee you that there's not a verse in the Bible that says that you're to do that. Because the Bible actually calls us to restore, to reconcile. Love calls us to solve problems through reconciliation. And let me say something that's very difficult if there ever is a problem, would you please don't be the person who runs, that runs from the marriage, that runs from that friendship, that runs from the church. Would you be the person that says, I want to reconcile that? I'm going to do the hard thing, the difficult thing, and step out 
in faith and talk to that person. There are people who hold on to bitterness and hurt their whole lives, and they don't take that step to reconcile. It's like, it's like they have a pet, sin, and they feed that sin with resentment. They bring it out when they want self-justifying comfort, and they tuck it away when it's time for the Lord's table. But church, what God's calling us to do here is to bring that out, to confess it as sin, and to seek to restore this is how, that is the, the world deals with problems by ignoring sin, by pretending it's not that big of a deal, by running from it. But the church, we deal with it by reconciliation, restoration, talking, and solving problems God's way. And so what I think he's saying in verse 27, he's warning us. In verse 28, he commands us, look at verse 28, he commands us to examine ourselves, particularly in these areas Verse 28, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So there, th- there are three commands here in this verse. The second, the second and third command are eat and drink. And the first command is before you eat or drink, to do what? To examine yourself. The word examine means to test. Each year, many of you go to the doctor and you get a an examination, the doctor pokes and he prods and tries to find some problems and hopefully he doesn't find anything. But the point is that you go for that examination to find out if you have anything physically wrong with you. So at the Lord's table, we have this regular spiritual checkup. It's a self-examination. I just want to talk about this because I think sometimes we can think about this incorrectly. Sometimes people can think about this like this is this critical introspection where they're just wallowing in their past sins. That's not what he's talking about here. Biblically, in the Psalms, when the psalmist is examining himself, he first starts with prayer. It's a prayer of confession. This is just one psalm as an example. Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God. Examine me, O God. And know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts. So the biblical pattern of spiritual examination is to pray and ask God, God, please show me what I'm really like on the inside. And you know what? Sometimes it's not very pretty, is it? But sometimes we like to mask it over, right? I mean, we're we're so easily self-deceived. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean, we are so easily self-deceived. We naturally believe we're we're better, we're more spiritual than we actually are. We easily excuse our sin. We, We can easily make peace treaties with our secret sins because we don't really want to think we're that bad. But when we go before the Lord, who is holy and righteous, and we say, holy, righteous Lord, search me. Show me my heart. And scripture there says, who can understand your heart? Who can understand it? You know what the answer is? No one. Except one. And that is God. That's why the answer is, I, the Lord, search the heart. I, the Lord, examine the heart and test the mind. So we ask God in a prayer confession, God, show me who I truly am. When we confess that as sin to him and we've sinned against him, 
when he points that out. And I think there's two primary areas in which we are to examine ourselves, and that is, first of all, in our relationship with God. Is there anything between my, my, my heart and my Lord? Is there anything in my life that's hindering my relationship with God? And the second is our relationship with other people. Is, is there a broken relationship that I should try to mend? Now, let me make a comment here, because you might try to reconcile something, and someone doesn't want to do that. You know what? You can't make someone reconcile, right? All you can do is what God has called you to do. But is there something that you have done on your end that you need to recognize is wrong? And the pattern of self-examination is, first of all, a prayer of confession, and then a prayer of faith. In fact, that's why Jeremiah 17 Verse 14, he says this, heal me, O Lord. So my soul is desperately sick with sin and deceived. Search me. Oh, that's how bad I am. So Lord, heal me and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved for you are my praise. And so it's a prayer of faith. It's recalling to your mind the work of God. He's the one who saves the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, he has gifted you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Through Christ, you have been made holy. Through Christ, you are loved. In Christ, you are sanctified. Amen for that. So verse 27 commands us to examine ourselves. Pray and ask God to to show us our heart and confess your sin when he reveals it. And then pray in faith, trusting that he is the one who is your savior and redeemer. And then notice verse 28. The warning continues from verse 20, 26. Verse 28. Let a person examine, I'm sorry, verse 29. For anyone who, so let me say that again. Verse 28, 29 is a warning that continues from verse 27. So look at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as we partake, we are to, look at verse 29, we are to discern the body. What does that mean? What does it mean to discern the body? Well, the body here is a reference to Jesus' body. To discern the body, to judge the body, means that we are to discern why Jesus' body was broken for us. To discern the significance of his death on our behalf. To discern that he died to reconcile us in relationship to God and to each other. So if you look down in verse 27, he says, If anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, in other words, you're not recognizing the significance of Christ's death, that you're drinking judgment on himself. He is, he is eating and drinking judgment on himself. The principle here is this. If you don't judge yourself in that way, if you don't examine yourself in that way, then God will judge you. Now this is very sobering. He's talking to believers. He's talking to a local church. He's talking to people in the family of God. And and he's not teaching here that if you sin or if you take the Lord's table in an unworthy way that God will disown you. He's not saying God will kick you out of his family. 
That's not what this is teaching. But what he's teaching is that God cares for you enough. God cares for you enough to bring pain into your life so that you will restore the relationship with him. So that you will confess your sin. So that you will turn back to him. And that sometimes means that God gives us pain. Now you might hear that and you say, Pastor Ben, sounds like you're teaching that God's a mean God. And I don't believe that God is a mean God. God is not a mean God. He's not going to bring me pain. Well, I'm not teaching that God's a mean God to you, believer. What I'm teaching is that God loves you enough. And like a father would bring pain to his child so that he would not go the way of sin, God, our Father, will bring pain to our life so that we don't go our own way of sin. Look at verse number 30. Here's the pain in verse 30. That is why many of you, can you just look at that word many? Isn't that pretty shocking to you? That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the church. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So this is teaching that God treats us like a father. He loves us like a father. And what does a loving father do for his children when they're disobedient? He disciplines them. And, and there's, a, there's an unbiblical view of parenting that is in our world, but even into our church. And that is that loving parents, they just give their kids what they want. You know, if a kid screams or cries or begs or just really wants something, just go ahead and give it to them. That's not loving as a parent. That's actually being irresponsible as a parent, okay? But also it's kind of coupled with the idea that, that we parent kids with just rewards. Give them candy, give them all the stickers, you know, and don't do the pain part. because That's just going to turn them away from you. That's actually not what the Bible teaches. Actually, the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches in Proverbs 13, 13 24. I should know that verse because I... That reference, because I got told that a lot of times when I was growing up. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Let's make something clear, that if you're a parent and you're out of control in anger and you hurt your child, that's called abuse, right? That's not what the Bible is teaching here. The Bible teaches actually that a loving parent loves their children enough to recognize what they're doing is wrong to sit down with their child, to, to talk to them under the control of the Holy Spirit with love, to communicate what they did wrong, why they should not have done that, what they should have done, and then to apply appropriate discipline. And then to hug and pray for that child. Because the goal of Christian parenting isn't to punish that, that's actually the world's idea. The world's idea is we punish people who do wrong. But the idea of Christian parenting is there's pain applied so that we can restore. The world sees it like this. That when there's something that's wrong, we give pain to punish. 
The Christian idea is that when there's something wrong, we give pain so that there can be restoration, so there can be reconciliation. The ultimate goal of parenting is we want to restore our kids in a relationship with God and with the person they sinned against. So this is the, the biblical idea of what it means to discipline as a parent. And so take that over into our relationship with God. God is our loving father. And he loves us enough to sometimes bring pain in our life. And why does he do that? Because God wants what's most valuable in this world, and that is a close relationship with God. And so if you have pain in your life, I think it's important for us to ask this question. Is God trying to get my attention? I mean, notice what he says in verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and even some have died. How often do we attribute sickness and problems in life to our sin? And I think we should footnote this because we need to be careful. Not all sickness is attributed to sin. John chapter 9, Jesus was with his disciples. There was a blind man, and they said, Hey, Jesus, this guy's blind. Was it his parents' fault, or is it his fault? Was it their sin or his sin? And Jesus says, Well, it's neither one of them. Jesus said, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus taught, yes, sometimes God does give suffering and difficulty so that his glory can be displayed through that, through that person. So I think it's, we got to be very careful about attributing pain in someone's life to their sin. In fact, I would say this. I don't think it's ever appropriate for us to look at a city that's going through a disaster and to say it's because of their sin, or even to look at another person and attribute someone's sickness or pain to their sin. Because we're not God. Like, we can't connect those dots. If God's word doesn't say it, you got to be careful about declaring something like that. However, I do think we can look in our own hearts and ask God to connect the dots. To ask God, as we examine our own hearts, to identify if maybe this pain in my life is a result of some sin in my life. The spring of my junior year of college, I was sitting in a service like this on a regular basis at a small little church in Milwaukee, and I would come out each week and listen, and I had chapels at the Christian college I went to, and I knew that God was trying to get a hold of my heart. The Holy Spirit was putting his finger on certain areas of my life, some idols that I had exalted and loved more than God, but I kind of pushed it aside. I was having a good time in college, so, you know, who would to really deal with that at that moment? And then I had a day when I blew my knee out and I found myself in a hospital room and I was looking up at a ceiling and I knew, I knew that God had been trying to get a hold of my heart and I knew I was sitting there right now or laying there right now. At that moment, I was laying there because God was trying to say something to me. And I remember praying and confessing to that to the Lord. And listen, it was the idea that I recognized that my pain was connected to something going on in my life. God was trying to get are my attention. Can you think of the last time that you've connected some pain in your life to some sin in your life? I don't think this is a regular habit that we have, and I don't think you should 
say every pain in my life is a sin, okay? Don't, don't go there. I'm not saying that. But I think we should ask ourselves that question. Okay, I'm having some pain. Lord, is there something that maybe you're trying to teach me? Something that maybe I'm not seeing? Maybe something that I'm harboring, especially if you're living a life of unrepentance. You should open your eyes to the reality God is trying to do something in your life. So we examine ourselves. Look at verse 31. And we judge ourselves before God so he doesn't have to. Verse 31, if we judged ourselves truly, if you truly said, okay, I want to do the right thing and come before the Lord in this way, we would not be judged. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Notice that word condemned. That's speaking about the world standing before Jesus Christ. And those who have not believed in Jesus will be condemned as sinners who are unrepentant, and they will therefore be punished with everlasting, everlasting death. They will be separated from God in hell forever. That's what happens to the world. And so let me just say right now, if you're in here without Jesus Christ, that is the path you are on. But Jesus came to save you. And so if you call upon him, he promises he can and he will save. But for us in Christ, we don't need to fear that judgment. We don't need to fear that judgment. So what's he talking about? Look at verse 32. What does he mean when he says, we are disciplined, speaking about now, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Well, verse 32 means that God promises his children will be disciplined if they persist in unconfessed sin. However, if you can live a life without confessing your sin, if you can live a life that God's not disciplining you for that, if you can live a life without reconciled relationships with problems between you and other people and you don't care about solving that, if you're not living a life as a believer, you need to ask yourself, are you really a believer? I don't go around and discipline other people's kids. Sometimes I feel like it. But I don't. Why don't I discipline other people's kids? Because they're not my kids. The scripture is teaching here that God disciplines his own kids. So if you're living a life of sin, Christian, and you're not being disciplined by the Lord, you need to ask the question, Am I really one of God's kids? Because God loves you enough that he's not going to let you get away with it very much longer. Hebrews 12 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you like sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate, not sons. And so that's the warning right there for those who persist to live a life of unrepentance. And look at the end of verse 33 or the end of the chapter, verse 33. He gives some helpful advice to how do we live this out. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, 
wait for another, one another. In other words, love one another, care for one another, reconcile with each other. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it is not, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. So as we gather around the Lord's table, where are we to look? Well, let's look around. Are we living in unity and love with other believers? Are you doing everything you possibly can to have that? Look back, remember, and proclaim the Lord's substitutionary work. Let's, let's, as we go through this time, let's think about what Christ has done for us. Maybe recall to your mind some scripture, maybe the story of Christ's suffering and his death, the promises he gives. Look up. He's coming soon. The next time we're going to drink this cup with Christ is in his presence. Look within. Examine yourself, considering the Lord's judgment. Would you pray with me? Would you bow your head in prayer with me? Scripture encourages us first to examine ourselves. And so would you do that this time before we sing a song, before we go through the element, talk, pass out the elements? Would you just pray with me in your heart? Ask God to search your heart, to try you, to show you the wicked ways in you. And when the Holy Spirit brings it up, would you turn from that and turn to Christ and pray in faith and trust that he's your savior? He forgives, he loves, he cleanses.